0: Welcome back to The Thing With Feathers podcast. I'm your host, Courtney Ellis. It is so good to have Eric Eisenstein with us today. Eric is the author of two books, The Avian Rebbe Takes Flight and The Avian Rebbe Stretches His Wings. He has this wonderful online presence where he draws people in to Jewish wisdom through the beauty of birds. Eric, welcome to The Thing With Feathers.
1: Thank you. It's a real honor to be here.
0: It's so good to be here with you. We were chatting before the show that we we kind of feel like we know each other already even though this is the first time we've actually spoken.
1: Yeah, it's a it's a crazy thing. I mean, everything that happened with Avian Rebbe happened uh, from the onset of COVID, which was a bizarre time for a hundred reasons, not least of which that all of our relationships moved online and we started meeting people online in a way that we never had before. So it's a uh, it's it's one of the good things. I hate to say it, but it's a good thing that came out of COVID.
0: Absolutely. So you and I connected online, and and I found you through Twitter, but you also have this lovely website, and you're on Facebook, and you share these beautiful bird photographs and then tie them to Jewish faith, Jewish wisdom, the words of Moses and Abraham and the Psalms. And I have so enjoyed your books, both for their photographs, but also for their wisdom how in the world did you come up with the Avian Rebbe, and how did you get started in this journey?
1: Well, it, uh, thank you, first. Um, it started, as I say, with COVID. Uh, I had a best friend who lived in Hong Kong uh, when COVID broke out. And he and I were in touch every day, and I knew from talking with him that this was going to be a big thing that ultimately, inevitably, would have to come to the U.S. as well, globally but certainly to the United States as well. And at that time, I also had a friend who had been pushing me to buy a camera. And I had never wanted to have a camera before. I had never owned a grown-up camera before. But I thought, okay, we're about to be forced to be alone and outside. That's gonna be our new normal. And I thought, okay, I'm gonna buy a camera and spend my time in the parks. And sure enough, that's what I ended up doing. And I bought a camera. It was delivered just days before the middle of March in 2020 when everything shut down, including the camera stores. And the only thing that was still available was to go outside. So I started going to the parks every single morning. And I started teaching myself how to take photos of birds, principally because bird photography is probably the hardest kind of photography. And I figured if I could learn that, I could learn anything. So, And I liked birds. But I had never studied birds. I didn't know anything about birds. And so I started going to the park every day. I would take some really, really bad photos of birds. And I put them together with these little jottings on Facebook, which I called avian therapy. And they were just really dark humor. It was two or three sentences designed to try to make me smile in a very, very dark time. And I'd put it on Facebook and they started to kind of resonate with people and people saw these and said, wow, thanks for making me feel a little bit better, too. And then I got a call from my rabbi and he is as a brother to me. And he said, Eric, will you do me a favor? And I said, yes. What is it? And he said, I'd like you to start teaching. And I said, well, I'm I'm very honored and flattered. And and the answer is, of course, I will. About what? (laughs) What? And he said about the things you're putting on Facebook. They're resonating with people. And I'd like you to start teaching as part of our Friday night service, which at that point was on Zoom, about what you're doing. And that completely changed the dynamic. At that point, I had a, a very different sorry, lens uh, that I was using to look at the world. And now I started to look for ways that Jewish tradition and the natural world intersected. And come to find out, I found lots and lots and lots of them. And my little take on it, my slice of it, is birds and bird photography. And that's mm-hmm. where I started to teach on Friday nights. I started to write. Uh, I started to publish. And it's grown from there uh, in a variety of different ways. Now I spend quite a bit of time teaching in person, I take people on guided hikes. I've moved from stills photography to include video and making movies, and it's, it's, been a, it's been a phenomenal learning process for me as somebody who knew nothing about photography, almost nothing about birds, certainly nothing about teaching in that context, and uh, putting it all together uh, has, has been life-altering, literally life-altering for me, and, and I'm proud to say quite a few thousand people in the community.
0: I love that it was the phone call from your rabbi that sparked some of this further journey for you. What is the difference for our uninitiated listeners between a rabbi and a and a rebbe? You call yourself the avian avian rebbe, but you are not right. a rabbi.
1: Correct. So, a rabbi is an ordained Jewish cleric. There is an educational process uh, within the faith tradition uh, where you go to seminary and and the various authorities. Uh, Jewish legal authorities uh, acknowledge that you have you know, done and learned and been the things that are necessary in order to be a rabbi. And then, of course, you also uh, are recognized uh, by the state, uh, by legal authorities, secular legal authorities, just like any other cleric. Um, a rabbi can marry you or bury you. I cannot. A rebbe <laughs> is a little bit different. There are many Rebbies who are also rabbis, uh, but a Rebbe is an unofficial title given to a teacher, a community leader, oftentimes a storyteller, someone who influences and guides a community, but doesn't necessarily have ordination. At, at, and I, uh, let me be very clear and candid. The title of Avian Rebbe given to me by my rabbi, a real rabbi, was tongue in cheek. It was a joke at first. And I'd like to think that I've actually grown into it and that what started as kind of a joke um, became a real thing and, and really has developed into a community of people who learn together and do things together and support one another. And it's become meaningful and, and real.
0: What was it about birds that drew you in besides the challenge? I love that you started your photography with the hardest thing to photograph. They're mm. small, they're fast, they don't sit still, they like to hide among the leaves. But what was it about birds that that drew you in?
1: There is something about birds that resonates with people across cultures and time and geography. And, and it's the things that you mentioned, it's color and it's song and it's movement. I, I think probably more than anything, it's flight. There is something about seeing a bird fly that brings out a human aspiration. And whether that's, you know, the the sacred character of the dragon in Chinese culture, or the winged serpent in Aztec culture, or Icarus in the Greek culture, or the cherubim that are on top of the holy ark in ancient Israelite culture. There is something about wings and flying that humans want, and birds are everywhere. They're beautiful. They're accessible, if challenging, uh, but accessible. And uh, of all the different things that I could do with a camera, or or excuses, if you will, that I could find to be outside, there was just something about birds that was very attractive to me.
0: Mm. I love that connection to the different cultures and the creatures with wings and how alluring they are. I, I think for many of us, we, we grow out of that in childhood and kind of lose that whimsy and we lose that spark mm. and then recover it later in life. You know, there's kind of a stereotype that middle-aged white people get into birding. My, my husband and right. I are like, we're becoming the stereotype. But oh, yeah. recover that joy of of the love of flight and the whimsy of birds, I think, is a sacred, precious thing.
1: I do, too. I do too, and and you know I'm a middle aged white guy, and uh, so it's obligatory that I get into birding, but I, I, you know, I like to think that I do it a little bit differently than some people, in in the sense that um, I'm not interested in how many species I've seen. I don't maintain a life list. I certainly am not competitive uh, about it, except in in one little area of uh, trying to share more broadly, but mm. it it's about appreciation. Um, Hmm. it's not about putting names to things so much as it is, what can I learn from something? What can I see that sparks an idea that I can turn into a teaching and share with the community? And, uh, so yeah, I mean, there's, there's a beautiful aspect about birds that I think sometimes can get lost in birding where it it becomes a checklist issue. The, the joke, of course, is that it's Pokemon Go for old people. And, and I think that, in a sense, that diminishes that joy and whimsy that you talk about, that, that are, for me, at the essence of what this is, is really all about. That's the root of it.
0: Mm. Tell me how you connect your birding to your spiritual walk and your spiritual life. How does seeing a herring gull at the pond turn into a devotional because your books are very devotional you you invite your readers you don't tell us what to do but you invite us to read the book slowly to read one or two sections at a time and every section is paired with a beautiful photograph and then a teaching drawn from your faith and your study of the scriptures about this particular bird and what this bird has taught you how do those Come about? What is the synergy for you between the gull or the kingfisher or the bluebird and the teaching?
1: If I were a songwriter, uh, the question would be: you know, what comes first, the melody or the lyric? And sometimes it's it's one or the other. So oftentimes, I'll go to the park to wander and wonder. That's what I call it. Uh, these are are what I call interrupted walks where the the purpose is really to go and walk and wander and wonder, and then it's interrupted by a bird showing up. So I I go there oftentimes with a question in my head that I'm trying to wrestle with, or I go there with something that I'm thinking about. Uh, It could be Shabbat. It could be a holiday. It could be a character from the Bible, something that I've been thinking about and then, randomly, coincidentally, providentially, a bird appears and sparks a thought, and the two naturally go together. and And those are those are the the synaptic uh, reflexes, I suppose, uh, in the way that my brain is wired. And then sometimes it's exactly the opposite. Um, I. I'm thinking of a bird that I saw one time uh, who was, it looked like uh, sitting on sentry duty. It was a hawk, and it was up on top of a post out in the middle of the desert, and it looked like a sentry, and it made me think of the concept of Shomer, which is the guardian, um, the person who stays with a deceased person from the instant that they die until the time that they're buried. The, the deceased's body is never allowed to be alone from the time of death until the time of burial. And the Shomrim, the guardians, are amongst the most highly regarded people in our community because the gift that they give to the deceased is given without any possible expectation of repayment. And it's a very powerful, it's a very powerful thing the Shomrim, and seeing that bird sitting there looking in that way, maybe it was inevitable that the connection would be drawn, maybe not, but it certainly struck me very powerfully and, and is one of the drashot, the, the teachings uh, of which I'm most proud.
0: Mm. It's beautiful. it's almost an unanswerable question which comes first the chicken or the egg. But there's there's That's right. overlap and there's the things that you're reading and studying inform your birding and the birds inform what you're reading and studying. It's exactly and right. It's one of
1: the it's beautiful exactly. things
0: I think about growing up in a faith and having it deep inside you is you're sometimes not even aware that that psalm is rattling around in your soul until mm. you see a bird and and it's it sparks that remembrance. I um I was reading recently in in, I think it was your second book about the black chinned hummingbirds, and you you connected them to the the idea of the fullness of time and you wrote Jewish observance is predicated on repetition. Would you say more about that? What is it about the Jewish faith and the the repetition of readings and traditions and the cycle of the year um, that shapes how you view the world?
1: Sure. So probably the most important tool, if you will, maybe even technology, in the Jewish faith is our calendar. Oddly enough, um, battles have been fought about calendars in ancient days. Um, there We've always, were
0: all, been, like this. We've always it, been fighting about things.
1: <laughs> yeah, I mean, the calendars... Uh, You know, we kind of laugh now because the calendar is the calendar. It's all calculated. And and I can tell you, you know, 500 years in the future, what date, you know, Thursday is going to be the this, right? But it didn't used to be that way. The calendar, the Jewish calendar is a combination of the solar and lunar calendars. So we have 13 months of either 29 or 30 days. um, And because the seasons have to coincide with the holidays... Uh, we have leap month, not leap day, but leap month, uh, every few years. And the calendar historically began when the new moon was observed. And it, it it was very complex, let's just say. Now it's all calculated. But the calendar defines everything from holiday observance, ritual observance, to the, the, the whole concept of seasons and, and repetition. So, for example, the high holidays um, that we celebrate in the fall, uh, you know, come on the 1st and 10th of Tishrei, the, the Hebrew month of Tishrei. The exodus from Egypt, which is celebrated with Passover, Pesach. Um, and, of course, uh, Easter falls during that, that period as well. Um, are specified in the Torah, in the Hebrew Bible, uh, when they have to take place. And every single week, uh, a a Jewish congregation uh, reads what's called a Parsha, a section of the Bible and a section of the prophets. And those are all uh, cyclical. There there is no question. There is no discretion or or choice. What what are we going to study this week? Uh, There is a cycle. And and it's the same cycle that it's been for thousands of years. And we read the same thing year after year after year. And it becomes a, a deep and lasting part of us, uh, not just in ritual observance, but in expectation of what this time of year holds for us. Uh, it it becomes a, a sense of, uh, as we look at the spring and we look at the return of the birds, Uh, We change the prayers uh, from dew to rain. Uh, You know, again, the the Hebrew Bible was written uh, or given during an agricultural era in human development. And so everything is built around that sense of the natural world. Uh, There is no, in in the Hebrew tradition, uh, the biblical tradition, there is no split between religion and life. In other words, religion is not something that one does on Saturday, and then we go and we do our secular things. Um, Our religious awareness uh, permeates every aspect of our life day to day to day um, with various highs and lows uh, associated with commemorative events. Um, Right now, we are in a a very joyous uh, period of the year, Uh, the months of Adar and Nisan, Are joyous periods, and in the summer we'll move to Av, uh, that holds the saddest day of the Hebrew year. Uh, Mm -hmm. So, uh, all of these things are tied to the calendar and to the seasons, and baked into the rhythm of life. And of course, Shabbat, which for us is considered to be, you know, created even prior to the creation, Um, Mm -hmm. Shabbat was designated prior to this the seven days of creation um and is the culmination of creation you know that's that's cyclicality everything is is built around cycles of seven uh, you know there are seven days uh, then you have the period of seven weeks and then you have the period of 49 years and you know seven seven comes up a lot we're we're hmm. all about cycles all about hmm. cycles
0: and it makes sense because humans are such forgetful creatures. Like we need the constant reminder that, you know, I'm, I'm Presbyterian and we go from the season of Lent to the season of Easter to this, you know, and every year I'm like, oh, it's Lent again. Oh, but I need it to be Lent because I need these reminders right. year after year. It's my children every morning, every morning. Oh, we have to brush our teeth again. Yes. Yes, we do again.
1: <laughs> but, right, but Exactly. God,
0: how forgetful we would be and set these repetitions and these parameters for us as this divine and holy and kind reminder of, of those things that we need to have in our hearts and, and in our minds.
1: Yeah, it, it that's right. And it, I mean, at a purely functional level, um, you know, you can see that it it's worked well. I mean, one of the things that I always find fascinating is, you know, when you go back and, and read the Bible and you read of the various tribes, and I'm not even talking about the big ones, right? You know, the Egyptians or the Babylonians, but, you know, the Hittites and the Jebusites and the, all, all the various ites, right? And they're all <laughs> gone. And, and the Jews are still here, still reading the same book, in large measure uh, still celebrating in the same way, observing the same rituals. I mean, we'll we'll observe Passover uh, our children are still uh, ritually circumcised. Um, you know, marriages are conducted the same way, on and on and on and on. And I think it's because of that cyclicality and that ability to base our observance not on a place or not on a building uh, and not on anything uh, material, but but because our, our faith is uh, tied to a book. And that book is portable, uh, and it is also able to be internalized. And so, mm. you know, the things, I mean, obviously much of, of uh, Jewish tradition was oral, uh, presumably all of it, uh, before it was written. Um, and, and, you know, it, it was kept in people's heads. Um, but by writing it down and making it transportable, um, all of a sudden you have the ability to, to be lasting Um, Even in the face of dispersion, which, you know, of course, uh, the majority of modern Jewish history uh, is a tale of dispersion and the diaspora. um, And no less survived.
0: Yeah. Speaking of the diaspora, what is it like to be a Jew in Texas?
1: Oh, well, it's easy. Um, Yeah. You know, oddly enough, uh, there are American Jews who don't live in Chicago and New York. Um,
0: what? No way. <laughs>
1: and I know, I know. And I and I say that for my Jewish friends who live in Chicago and New York. Uh, they're the ones that need to be aware. Or um,
0: Los Angeles. I'm here in Southern we're California. Or Los Angeles.
1: No, that's exactly yeah. right. Even Miami. Um, no, I mean, in, in Austin, we have a thriving Jewish community. Uh, and by number it is smaller than uh, say Dallas or Houston uh just like the city of Austin is smaller than Dallas or Houston but in terms of the number of congregations that we have and the engagement and the variety of of denominational uh, uh institutions uh we are thriving blowing and going and yeah. doing all kinds of wonderful things and uh you know there there are certain uh, challenges in the sense of um if i were living in new york i would have access to to more uh, kosher restaurants for example but uh you know again with with covid and uh ups uh, lots of food can be shipped through the mail and you know we've we make do we make do we do very well here we do very well here
0: i'm glad i'm so glad Thank we you. We have a, uh, there's a Jewish temple just down the street from our church Mm -hmm. and and a few years back there, there was a shooting in San Diego and it was connected to this congregation and, Mm. um, and it was a, a a Presbyterian man who went and, and shot at, Mm. and killed a woman at a, at a synagogue in San Diego. And so I called them and I said, I just want you to know, like we stand with Mm. you and you don't have to be be afraid us were, you know, and I said, what can we do to help? What can we do to walk with you through this dark, difficult season? And they said, just, just come and worship with us. Just come on a Saturday mm. come to our service and, and sit with us and be with us. And I have very rarely experienced hospitality. Like I did that day, you know, mm. we were, we were there to love on them and they loved on us. Right, and right, I was right. surrounded by these women who were helping me flip through the prayer book. Cause I didn't know where nice. I was supposed to be going. Right, and right, it was, right. I hold out a lot of hope for those ecumenical friendships and just the, the warmth of the Jewish community toward the Christian brothers and sisters down the street and, and vice versa.
1: Yeah, I've, I've certainly experienced that. Uh, personally, I mean, you know, as, as doing my Avian Rebbe work, I probably, well, I certainly have spoken in more churches than I have in synagogues. And, you are in churches. And, well, that's right. That's right. But I mean, the, the number of invitations that I get is, is very material. And the depth of, of welcome and the warmth of the welcome is absolutely overwhelming. I mean, you know, good people find good people, whether they're Christian or Jewish or Muslim or Jain or anything else. Good people support good people. I mean, we had, we had a horrible situation here where uh, one of the, the temples um, was attacked by an arsonist. And it was right before the high holidays, and, you know, we couldn't use the building. Um, and the Episcopal Church said, hey, we're not doing anything. Uh, come use our place. And, and that's where everybody went. And mm. it was open and giving. And, uh, you know, that's, uh, there's, we have a very active interfaith uh, organization in Austin or, or in Central Texas in our area. And uh, I'm fascinated by the the both the the differences which i will by no means minimize because they're deep and foundational and and really really important and the overwhelming similarities uh doctrinally and and i think it's fascinating and when in fact I, i'm going to be teaching tomorrow night uh, about a photo of a woodpecker and a house sparrow hmm. and the question is um, essentially. What do you see? And, and if you ask a, an ornithologist, they'll tell you that I see a house sparrow and a woodpecker. And if you ask a biologist, they'll say, well, I see two birds. And if you see uh, you know, a, a regular old person, um, maybe they see a couple of birds and a tree. And, and it's a fun exercise because depending on where you come from, you see different things but we're all looking at the same photo. And mm-hmm. in, in a, call it a, a, a faith-based uh, perspective, uh, maybe you see a Jew and a Christian standing in front of you. Or maybe you see uh, two children of God standing in front of you. No difference. Mm-hmm. Two middle-aged <laughs> white people talking about birds. You know, so I mean, it's <laughs> it's the kind of thing where... Uh, so much of the difference in what we see actually comes from the perspective that we bring rather than something inherent to what's in front of us. And that's mm-hmm. one of the things that I try to draw out in, in my teaching. And, and it's, it's the kind of thing that really resonates with folks. Um, people are very, very open and interested um, about learning these lessons regardless of where they come from. It's, it's a lot of fun for me. I learn as much as, as the quote students do.
0: For sure. One of my hopes is to be able to attend one of your talks in person someday. I know I can I'd, get them online and things it. like that. It would be so fun I'd love to have your audience at some point. And I so appreciate that you mentioned both the deep differences, which we don't want to minimize, and the right. shared overlap and the shared connection. Because I think... Part of the fears that I hear within my own community about interfaith events are, well, that means we have to let go of all the things that make us distinct, the things that are important to us. But just the opposite is true. It's often in these conversations that you find yourself deepened in your own convictions while also getting to know a different perspective and developing compassion and empathy and interest. There is so much about reading your books that because they are written from this deep, faithful Jewish perspective, they help me understand my own faith in a deeper Wonderful. way. And I, I so appreciate that, that it's not that we are the same. It's that we have deep things to learn from each other, from the overlaps as well as from the differences. So I just I love how you phrase that.
1: Thanks. Thanks. Yeah, I, I've, I've really enjoyed uh, spending time um, with Christian audiences um, and, and Christian clergy. Who you know answer uh, big important questions? You know why was humanity created, right? Like that's a big important question, and and they answer it differently than I would, mm. and doesn't mean they're wrong. Um, on the contrary, uh, I think the, the variety of answers is absolutely fascinating. That's that's to me what it's all about is is being able to learn these different things.
0: Yeah. And and I think those conversations can take us if we're approaching them in a spirit of goodwill, can take us deeper into wonder and deeper into whimsy and deeper into like God is so much bigger and more mysterious and more interesting than I thought. I think One of the reasons people tend to get into birding in midlife after probably loving birds as kids and then not noticing them for 20, 30, 40 years is because we're at this point of of seeking something deeper. We've, you know, we've done Mm -hmm. okay in our career or we've raised our kids or, you know, there's the striving that has been set in front of us for the first three decades or four decades of our life has started to settle down and what's next. And it's Mm -hmm. either, you know, the affair in the sports car or maybe the world still has something (laughs) teach. Maybe there are depths to be mined that I don't yet understand. And I think birding is a gateway into that bigger experience of wonder. It's taken me into learning more about plants. I don't care about plants, Mm -hmm. but when the rare Lewis's woodpecker is in our area and they say it's in a sycamore grove and I don't know what a sycamore is, I have to learn plants. And I love the That birds can be this gateway into the universe is bigger and more beautiful and more interesting, and God is more mysterious and beautiful mm. and interesting than maybe yeah. my little son's lesson led me to believe.
1: No, that's absolutely right. Uh, you know the the Jewish credo, if you will, uh, is is the prayer called the Shema and and in English, uh, it its effectively translates you know hero Israel, uh, the Lord is our God, the Lord is one. And that question of one, what does that mean? Uh, you know, the, the simple answer is, well, there's just one God, right? Monotheism. Um, but there are all kinds of deeper interpretations, richer interpretations of one that, you know, get into God is oneness, or God is all-encompassing, or, you know, everything is within the scope of God. And, and now you start to see the divine in a sycamore grove not not as a not as a uh, you know let's go worship the trees kind of way but rather that that there is a divine essence in and a divine manifestation in the creation that we can all see and and then the world becomes very interesting because now you're walking around and everywhere you go and everything you see reminds you of divine creation and that's hmm. powerful that's really it makes powerful cool.
0: So interesting, all of a sudden, it's this light switch yep. that flips, and and it's right. not pantheism, right? The tree itself right. is not God. No, 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 no. God was no. a baker, you know, the best baker in all of France. And you walk into the bakery and you're like, Oh, God put something of Himself in this cake. And that doesn't mm. mean God took off part of a finger, it means that we right.
1: see <laughs> <the fingers laughs> exactly, exactly. Yeah, yeah. Eric, no, I mean, it's a... words of... no, go ahead, no, 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 go but on.
0: Oh, I was just going to ask, tell us about the birds of Texas. I'm here in Southern California. We have listeners all over the country, all over the world. Tell us about the birds of Texas.
1: Well, the the state bird, of course, is the northern mockingbird, uh, which is a fascinating and beautiful bird uh, known for its songs. And I think it's it's the state bird of 30-something states, something like that. So there must be something about those bird songs uh, that people like. Um, one bird, of course, that, that I don't know that you have as, as much in California as that is the Northern Cardinal, uh, the red bird. And, you know, they're everywhere here. I mean, all over if, if there's one bird that anybody in Texas would know, it's the, it's the Cardinal, uh, because they're at everybody's feeder, uh, and you see them in every park and you see them all over the place. And they're, of course, very distinctive, you know, with, with the bright red feathers and the black face on the males. And there's also something very interesting. Invariably, if I put up a photo of a cardinal, somebody will tell me about their, the experience that they have of somebody in their family who has died and who, when they are thinking of that person, a cardinal shows up in front of them and they think that they have seen a messenger or the soul or a reminder in some way of their departed relative, invariably. Mm. And in Jewish tradition, there's a, a huge, huge and deep literature about uh, birds and souls. And, and you know, that's its own whole thing. But um, but Texas has lots and lots of cardinals, Um We're actually, in in Austin, uh, we are right on the the cusp of, you know, kind of the North American Western birds and the North American Eastern birds. Uh, So we get to see overlap of birds that are at the, you know, extreme end of their range. And we're on the North-South Migratory Flyway. So we, I think, Texas, as you should be, as you should be. Uh, it's, it's really quite spectacular. Um, in central Texas, we see, well, lots and lots of different species. Uh, Texas, I think, has seen more species than any state other than Alaska, which again would make sense uh, just by area, but also we're you know, blessed with good geography. Um, I'm headed uh, actually next month down to the Gulf Coast. Um, where the birds that are migrating over the Gulf of Mexico uh, from the Yucatan or from South America will make their first landfall, and and I'm told uh, that it's quite a spectacular sight. I've never been. I'm new to birds. I haven't ever been, and uh, apparently, you know, war, right. warblers basically just kind of fall out of the sky exhausted, and and you walk through the parking lot of your hotel where they have some trees and And it looks like a Christmas tree with ornaments just everywhere, uh, so I'm very much looking forward to my first spring migration uh, down on the coast but uh, yeah we're we're blessed. Um, Central Texas uh, is the only place in North America where the golden cheeked warbler breeds uh, mm-hmm. and it's a federally protected uh, endangered species, kind of emblematic of this region and Of course, we also have painted buntings. Uh, which are are iconic birds, so we we kind of get it all i mean where where I live uh, in Austin, we have so many different habitats uh, from you know kind of dry desert ish uh, all the way to marshy type places that you know you see everything from uh, roadrunners runners uh, and wrens uh, to herons and egrets and and everything in the middle so it's a it's a fabulous place to come birding really is. really is.
0: One of the hazards of doing this podcast is every person I talk to I'm like, okay, now I have to go to Austin, now I have to go to British yeah, Columbia, right. now I have to, go to right, Miami. Right, you know? right,
1: right. <laughs> it's just
0: growing. It's just growing. Luckily, luckily, hopefully life is long and I can make it to all these.
1: Absolutely. All these. I've Absolutely. I've so
0: enjoyed your books because we do have a lot of crossover birds, you know. I I saw a fanabella mm-hmm. out here uh, a couple of weeks yeah. ago and you know, that and a lot of crossover hawks and a lot of crossover Mm -hmm. migratory birds, but also birds that we don't have. And it's been such a delight to learn from you. And, and one of the things I do really appreciate about your books is, you know, when you were describing the photograph, and if you ask two ornithologists or two biologists or two lay people, they'll tell you something different. I appreciate that you are not an ornithologist. You are not a PhD in birds because I have a lot of those birding books, and I love them, and I enjoy them, and Mm. I learn from them. But you learn something different about birds when you approach them without that scientific background, when you approach them with love and appreciation, when you approach them with your faith background, when you approach them as a photographer. And I think we can learn different things about birds and about everything with, with different approaches and different lenses. And so I so appreciate that this is not a scientific birding book. It's a mm. faith birding book and it's a, it's an interrupted walk birding book. It's a, right. let's go on this journey together. Um, and it's a really unique perspective. The crossover I think between birds and faith is becoming more popular because a lot of us are, are in that space, but there aren't a lot of books out there right now that are that sort of crossover
1: yeah, I think that's probably right. I, you know, again, candidly, I have no formal training in photography, no training in birds, uh, no very little formal training in Judaism, and and so uh, you know, I'm, I am I uh, am remarkably uncredentialed in all the fields in which I profess to be a professional, but um, but it's a lot of fun to put it all together, and that's what matters, and and I I hope the work speaks for itself, um, and. I think that there there is definitely space for I'll call it unprofessional or non professional non credentialed people to speak to what matters to them, and and one of the things, of course, that makes it hard um, is you know when you when you try to categorize uh, books like mine or the work that I do generally um, they don't quite fit into uh, the the Amazon categories. Um, and when you go to a publisher and they say, "Well, give me five examples of other books in your field that have done well so that I can print your book and know that it will also do well, you can't do that. they don't exist I've done something new and I, and i've self published my books as a result um, and it's been and that's been a fun process learning how to self publish so yeah, it, it doesn't quite fit into categories. Other than um, the category is is people who appreciate both faith and birds, who like seeing them together, and who are spiritually aware of the natural world. And yes, there's there's not a good label for that, and I don't care. <laughs> <laughs>
0: It's one of the things i love I love the most about them because it's I've been looking for this kind of book, and I didn't know what to search for and then we connected online right, and I was like, oh, right right, oh, right this is the thing this <laughs> um Fernando Ortega who's a Christian singer songwriter he was on the podcast a little while ago um he he has a book called Fernando's Birds that reminds me a little bit of, of yours and it's just these mm-hmm. funny little anecdotes and these photographs that he took and he's not a professional photographer and he also he had to self-publish he sells it through his website and he is mm-hmm. like multi-dove award winning you know like yeah, millions yeah. of films and it's just the world is not quite ready for these things but I I hold out hope that the world will be and you know and it's <laughs> But I think that there's really something there.
1: Well, thanks. I, I think so. I mean, again, you know, this is not my day job and I'm certainly not getting rich at it. Uh, I look at these at, at all of the work that I do as offerings. And mm-hmm. and so so long as the offerings retain uh, value to me as being something that has my heart in it, um, then then it's good, then it's valuable. Uh, it's meaningful and mm-hmm. and if it resonates with other people, then so much the better. but these are really you know i'm i'm okay shouting into the wind if that's what it takes, and it's hard sometimes um, you know i have i've written about uh, prophets uh, in the olden days shouting into the wind and and it's not easy um, as you know, and yet that 's what you do because if that's the message that you have. You you deliver the message, and if there's someone to hear it, then fabulous. And if there's not someone to hear it, then it doesn't matter, because you're you're put here to deliver your message. Mm. Hearing it is something else altogether that we can't <laughs> control. So ultimately,
0: it's about faithfulness and not success.
1: That's it. That's it. Well, I'd I, I push back a little bit. I, I know how you're using the word success, and 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 I would. I would say, in fact, I just made a video um, last week. Are you successful? Really? Um, And the whole premise was that to be successful is not about uh, either inputs or outputs, but rather, are you aligned with your creative essence? And if you're Mm. doing the work that is aligned with your creative essence, which in, in Jewish tradition is kind of what it means to be human, in other words, to be created in the likeness of God, the the sameness of God is to be creative, uh, generative. Then, then I would suggest that you are successful in in whatever field that you want to operate. And so, mm. that's uh, in in that sense, I I feel typically very successful.
0: Hmm. That is a word, sir. Thank you.
1: Sure, sure. I'm gonna tuck
0: that tuck that into my heart. That's a. I'm I'm the overachiever personality. So at the end of the day, to right. be able to sit and say, it's not about that. It's not about the numbers. It's not about the production. It's not about the did I cross all the things off my list?
1: Right. Yeah, it's really hard. I mean, our entire culture is is geared towards you know something that's very uh, I won't say dopamine driven, but but you know we we're metrics driven, we're accomplishment driven, we're about external validation. And, and, uh, you know, and all of that has a place. Uh, and, and I don't want to deny it. I mean, you know, uh, sports and art and literature are, are you know, oftentimes uh, driven by that. Certainly business. But at the end of the day, I, I wonder, you know, there, there are people I'm thinking of, of Pete Townsend, you know, the musician who who at one point said, yeah, you know, I happen to be really good at playing rock and roll. You know, I'm, I'm amongst the best in the world, but this isn't where I get fulfilled. And mm-hmm. it's just a job for me. And, and I may be misquoting, and I hope I'm not. I hope he'll call me and tell me. But it, it was <laughs> fascinating that, that um, you know, here's, here's a guy who by any measure is successful, uh, except by his own lights. And, and that's, you know, that's where we have to look, I think that's where we have to self assess what is it that that is success to us
0: yeah that's that's a good word and a good reminder well, Eric, I'm going to link to your books in the show notes and your social media. And I just want to encourage our listeners to go and find you because you have been such an encouragement to me. Mm-hmm. I I also want to encourage parents of small children. If you're a parent and you're a birder, my guess is your goal is similar to my goal of getting <laughs> your kids into birding one way or another. I leave Eric's books around the house and the kids find them and flip through them. And the pictures are so big and beautiful that they'll say, what is this? This is so interesting. <laughs> what is this rock doing? Why is this blue jay? Um, and it's been a really good gateway into conversations for me with my kids. So um, if you're a person of faith, I highly recommend these books. If you are not a person of faith, these are wonderful, gentle invitations into wonder. You don't have to believe anything or not believe anything to find some joy and some hope within the pages of Eric's books. So Eric, anything else that you'd like our listeners to know?
1: Um, No, I mean, you know, uh, go to the website, if you will, uh, and you'll see the range of things that I do. And uh, I'd invite people to come wander and wonder with me. That's what it's mm. all about. I'd, I'd love, I'd love, 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 love uh, to be able to learn together with a larger community. It's uh, mm. it's really an honor for me.
0: It's the Avian Rebbe, R E B B E. Dot com And you can find him online. You can find him on social media. I'll link to all of it. Please do check out his books. They are such a delight. Eric, I so Thank appreciated you. our conversation and your wisdom and your kindness and your generosity. Wow. I pray you all the kosher food in, in Austin, Texas.
1: <laughs> Thank you. Thank you. It's a real it's a real honor to be here. It really is. Really is. I appreciate the invitation.